Welcome to Actionable Insights on the Business of Healthcare, a podcast from Doctivity Health to help you navigate today's challenging healthcare environment. More than ever, business success enables investment in people and technology needed to best care for your patients. I'm your host, David Jolly. It's my pleasure today to talk with Kendra Ocker, President and CEO of Evangelical Community Hospital in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Kendra has served in various leadership roles at Evangelical since 1990 in marketing, physician practice management, operations, and executive leadership, and has helped shape the strategic growth that sets Evangelical apart from other community hospitals. A healthcare fellow of the Healthcare Advisory Board and a member of the American College of Healthcare Executives, as well as the Medical Group Management Association, Kendra serves on the Board of Directors of the Hospital and Health System Association of Pennsylvania. Among her many awards and recognitions was being named the Pennsylvania Rural Health Leader of the Year. Welcome, Kendra, and thank you for joining us to talk about the challenges and opportunities you experience in leading an important community hospital. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate the opportunity. You know, during my 40 years in healthcare, I know Evan as a well-respected quality community hospital and physician network. Please tell us a little about Evangelical and how you and your team work to ensure the Lewisburg community has the care it needs locally. Sure. I would say that I, I think Evangelical is very unique in today's healthcare environment in that it is an independent community hospital, of which I now believe in Pennsylvania there are maybe nine independent community hospitals out of 155 uh, hospitals across the state. Mm-hmm. We. Um, our 131-bed hospital licensed that way, comprehensive in and outpatient services. You know, we are located in Lewisburg, but we do serve Snyder Union uh, and Northumberland counties, as well as Lycoming, Montour, and, and Columbia counties. In 1995, we established a subsidiary called the Evangelical Medical Services Organization to maintain and develop a network of high-quality primary care physicians in the area. And that moved into specialty practices and now has 102 physicians and 90 advanced practice providers. And that's been very, very key to our success, our ability to be able to attract and and retain physicians and, and providers. We do have an open medical staff. So we have about 415 physicians on the medical staff representing 37 specialties. We do require board certification. At this point, 97% are board certified. There's a few, you know, waiting to meet those requirements. Besides the EMSO and the hospital have established ERMS, which stands for Evangelical Regional Mobile Medical Services, and that houses all of our pre-hospital services as well as uh, regional ambulance companies. We also have a real estate arm to uh, somewhat drive some non-healthcare related revenues to the bottom line. So we work very hard to ensure that the community, but really the central Susquehanna Valley region has the healthcare services available to it that it needs. How has healthcare delivery changed over the past few years? I would say during the height of the pandemic, healthcare took a noticeable shift and which somewhat leveled or nearly flipped the communication and partnership between the patient and the caregiver. And what I meant by mean by this is that I think that patients have gained the ability to control more of their health care and participate in the process of seeking and receiving care they need. So when I when I look at 
For instance, the availability of COVID testing without a provider office visit, that occurred. And patients were seeking our treatment sites and then contacting their physicians for orders. And this really started to create a paradigm shift, which empowered patients to not just rely on their primary care physician relationships to direct their care, but rather seek out care sort of a la carte, for lack of a better word, from other sources, such as mail order lab testing, uh, telemedicine, which we hear a lot about, urgent cares, uh, walk-in clinics. This shift is going to present future challenges, I think, to preventive care and overall wellness as patients shy away from regular preventive care and overall, you know, or, or preventive care and then visits with their primary care physicians. We've been seeing this as people have been slow to some degree post the extreme times of COVID to get back to seeing their primary care physicians. Mm -hmm. And these can be missed opportunities for preventive care and will result in, I think, urgent increased in urgent and emergent health concerns requiring immediate attention. I think that is one of the biggest changes in care delivery over the last couple of years. It's an interesting situation. For years, we've been talking about having your primary care doctor as your quarterback and controlling everything. And we've also at the same time said that you need to take a more active role in your good health. So it sounds like it's going to be quite a balance. I agree 100%. It's a very challenging time. What are your thoughts on the state of the healthcare industry as we begin 2023, given shortages of physicians, nurses, and various other healthcare professionals, along with inflationary pressures and, of course, reimbursement challenges? For, for a quick question, there's a lot packaged in this. <laughs> we have endured the pandemic and the effects of COVID-19 in our lives. And as people, I think COVID changed the way we communicate, care for other people, educate our children, how we work so much more. And the public health and economic effects continue to affect the well-being of many people. And I would argue widen the inequities everywhere. You know, we've changed. In healthcare, the pandemic and the associated community mitigation efforts enacted altered the delivery and access of healthcare. And I would argue as well as public perception. I think we've done good work. We've cared for many people. We've served the community well, which is what we're entrusted by them to do. But I think the public forgets that pretty quickly. We're witnessing right now this media frenzy that's challenging the tax exempt status, financial practices and the market power. This is happening despite the fact that there's still thousands of people hospitalized with COVID and there's people still dying from it on any given day. I think that this is a big topic that it's being discussed behind the scenes, but not so much publicly, is that the financial health of America's hospitals are in jeopardy. And the projections are that more than half of all hospitals in the country have negative operating margins. And then you take that with shortages of nurses and other clinicians putting severe pressure on teams and creating backlogs of, of, of patients who have needs to get in the hospital. You know, the workforce is exhausted and burned out. Many people have experienced trauma. And there's a lot more nuanced stories behind healthcare right now. Like you see big tech companies like Amazon and retailers like CVS that are disrupting healthcare with these sort of customer-centric 
tech savvy approaches to healthcare. And it seems great on the surface, but what doesn't get mentioned is what hospitals do every day that these companies do not do and they will not because it's not profitable. And that is to take care of people who are critically ill, take care of people who do not have insurance or the means to pay. And that's what we do 24 hours a day, every day in a face-to-face environment. From Evan's perspective here, we're working through these challenges of challenging times, but shortages of labor, these increased labor costs, the incredible costs of traveling labor, particularly RNs, is is really killing healthcare and any kind of margin that we had. You know, if you had a 3% operating margin in the past, you were stellar. You're lucky right now to break even. And the public views healthcare through the lens of big business. And they think hospitals are rolling in the cash um, and they're not. And yeah. these disruptors that I noted are, are taking margin business away from hospitals and tightening things more. I mean, I could go on and on about this. I think we're experiencing unprecedented shortages of healthcare workers. In the midst of this increasing growth in newer expanding systems, I mean, we are seeing sicker and sicker people coming into the hospital. And it's just a crazy time when you look at the public perception. I mean, there's so much build going on, physical build going on. You're, you know, you have this declining number of workers in healthcare, providers in healthcare, and yet You think about like the payer forces that are worried about making sure their products are being sold. There's plenty of beds in the area and across the region and across the state and country. But right now we can't even staff these beds. So you're looking at staff beds as opposed to actual physical beds. And most hospitals have more physical beds than they do staff beds. And then, you know, with all that, you have these fixed costs, you know, and you, you have to heat and cool these buildings and all of these facilities got shortages of professionals and your costs are just through the roof and they're very difficult to manage then you add inflationary pressures on that most current fee schedules don't cover the cost of providing care so it's become a difficult time and the medicare population is just exploding and it's projected that way through 2060 so medicare is looking at what they can do to reduce reimbursements in an effort to preserve the Medicare program. And that I think the collateral damage is bound to be the loss of access to healthcare for everybody, not just for our elderly population, but I I think for everybody, as I see the healthcare system further deteriorating because of financial instability and a lack of a workforce. Healthcare has always been a challenging industry, but it seems to be even more so today, given all that you've just mentioned. What's your approach to recruitment and retention, given the high cost of the traveling providers? In order to meet community demand, we've had to staff significantly with contract labor, particularly with RNs. Certainly not sustainable in the long run. I think as the costs of contract labor start to come down, Evangelicals, an organization that is a high quality organization, our clinical care is excellent. We are a five star CMS hospital, so we meet our um, quality and our patient experience metrics 
quite well. We are in a region where we've been able to recruit and retain providers and staff. I think from a reimbursement perspective, we're never going to be reimbursed at the levels of some of our tertiary partners who also do research and, and education. So we look at matching the market. We're never going to, for instance, in compensation, lag behind or we're never going to lead. We try to match it, but we try to really sell ourselves from a recruitment and retention standpoint on our culture. You know, Mm -hmm. we have a very engaged workforce and um, we have a very unique culture where we're able to show the community that we not only care for them, that but we care about them. And I think that that is what is makes community healthcare a little bit different. So we really try to distinguish ourselves from others. Evan has a long history of partnering with other organizations for better health in the community. For example, the Miller Center. Please tell us about your focus on partnerships to benefit patient care. The Geisinger uh, collaboration, for instance, that we embarked on, the Geisinger ended up taking a slight minority stake in us, investing in our prime project, which was our inpatient patient tower. We joint ventured them on the Miller Center, which is really a health and wellness center designed to try to keep the community healthy. We also were able to partner with them on Epic through a federal safe harbor. I think ultimately a partnership is about what's better and the best interest of the patient. So for interest, the electronic records, your ability to go to one place. If you don't get your care here, you generally seek it at Geisinger, the ability for the providers to easily see and coordinate your care. It can really create a reduction in the total cost of care, those types of things. We do a lot of work with Geisinger on professional services agreements, but we also work with other organizations to provide clinical services. For instance, UPMC Susquehanna and the work we've done with them in the past in in cardiology. So I think I sort of look at this as there's an economic principle called co-opetition. You can cooperate, you can compete, and as long as it's in the best interest of the patient and they are the people that win in this, the better it is to come up with community partnerships. I think the Department of Justice revealed that it reviews some of these things as anti-competitive. I, I don't know that I agree with it. I don't know that they really understand rural health care, but there are still ways without those kind of arrangements to do what's right. For instance, I can give you some other examples of affordable and stable and well-maintained senior housing is is needed here in Union County. And housing is a, a social determinant of health. If you talk to my care coordinators, they'll tell you um, income-based housing for seniors is a, is a key issue in this region. And rural housing works, which is an offshoot of the Union County Housing Associates, the Housing Authority, they were awarded a a low-income tax credit allocation by the Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency to enter into a long-term lease for some hospital property along Newman Road here near the Mm -hmm. hospital. And they're going to construct a senior housing complex consisting of about 40 uh, first-floor garden apartments and a community facility. And it'll be known as Newman Commons, and it'll be owned and managed locally. And There will be the ability for seniors to occupy these units close to the hospital. There's the school nearby, lots of other opportunities. They hope to break ground on this in 2024 and complete construction, but we're able to partner with them to help them meet a need and in the long run, help the overall health of the people of this region. And that's really, I think, what our goal is in looking at any kind of of partnership 
We do that also with food. When working through the Miller Center with the local food pantries, and we have a partnership with a farm called Dreamcatcher Farm to locally source fresh food, get it into the hospitals, get it into the hands of the public. Obviously, access to healthy food is another social determinant of health. So yes. I think that that's what we work really hard to do, to think out of the box try to take care of the community. And we can't be all things to all people, but we can certainly partner with others who are doing their work to do right by our patients. Well, you and your team are doing a great job with that. And just to give our listeners a little geography, a little lay of the land here, you talked about Geisinger being the, the large tertiary facility and what is that, like 15 miles from, from Evan? Yeah, I think as the crow flies, it's maybe 18 miles mm -hmm. east of, of the hospital. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned something else about wellness. You know, healthcare in the U.S. is often criticized for being more directed to sick care rather than working proactively to help patients stay well. Tell me a little bit more about what Evan is doing to promote wellness and educate the community on its importance. I think that healthcare in the United States has historically had a hard time shifting from sick care to promoting wellness and preventive care. Keeping people well and out of the hospital is for the betterment of the community, but preventive and wellness services are not well reimbursed by the payers. So they're not always financially viable services for healthcare facilities to offer. There's been some progress in this arena, but it has been slow and focused on mandatory like payer coverage for things like screening tests but really not comprehensive lifestyle wellness like nutrition, exercise, lifestyle management. So convincing the community to self-pay for services such as these, which they may or may not believe will keep them well, as opposed to services that address their immediate needs is a hard task. So for instance, a sick visit is paid for by your insurance. Right. A gym membership is not. So what we really decided to do in order to keep people well and improve the health of the community is joint venture with Geisinger on the Miller Center for Health and Recreations. We hope that we can show that commitments and investments like the Miller Center can really help people stay well, but ultimately reduce the cost of healthcare in a community. And I can give you an example. Like we have a really strong cardiac rehab program here at Evangelical. Now, through this partnership with the Miller Center, we can give patients the opportunity to transition from cardiac rehab into a community-based fitness program after their structured rehab is complete. So there's so much that we can do with all kinds of things at the Miller Center for for families, uh, access to childcare and after-school programs, fitness, wellness, keeping people from isolation, you know, all of the basic community health services that can be rendered out of there and the ability to work with Geisinger in some of their research and really seeing if some of these programs we offer are long-term sustainable improvements to health. And again, ultimately reduce the cost of healthcare. Doctivity Health, as you know, focuses on actionable analytic data to help healthcare organizations drive referrals and revenue. Please tell us your thoughts on the importance of utilizing data to shape the decisions you and your team make to move EVAN forward. Well, data is important to everything and especially to the evaluation and effectiveness of our existing services, as well as projecting future growth and market share opportunities. And 
I would say now more than ever, as we're experiencing a, a paradigm shift, it's important to gain as much insight as possible into how and why patients are seeking care. And the traditional model of healthcare delivery has been challenged and, and we need the data to guide us in how we redefine our model, you know, the move away from fee-for-service care to value-based care. Everything that we do is driven with the data. It notes on your website that you constantly monitor the changes in how healthcare is delivered. So you're always ready to take advantage of opportunities that meet the needs of the communities. Please speak to this approach and share an example or two of such opportunities. Just recently built our addition to the hospital. We had a brand new ICU unit. And then clearly through the pandemic, we identified the need for strong critical care medicine due to our inability to transfer patients. Every facility was full. So we focused this past year on building our own critical care team. We had been receiving, we had some critical care providers, but we've been receiving some support from Geisinger. But in the past year, we've moved to a 24 seven, 365 day critical medicine provider staffing model. It expanded critical care medicine coverage throughout the hospital. So when we see the need, we adjust to it. We also learned from the pandemic the value of telemedicine services. And so on the inpatient side, we now have primary stroke, backup, psychiatry, neurology, nephrology, infectious diseases, and other kind of consulting services to help reduce transfers to other institutions who are, are also overwhelmed with, with a volume of patients. The last example would be no different than most organizations right now is that we opened urgent care to support our primary care and emergency departments as we saw the value in getting people to the right place for their care. Sure. Mm -hmm. What's the importance and significance of Evangelical and your employed docs being members of the Keystone Accountable Care Organization? Sure, this was a great thing for us. You know, initially when we first started it, our physicians had very little experience with a shift to value-based care. And so really in, in getting the physicians to work within the ACO, it's prepared our, our clinicians for population health. It, it's provided an understanding and the tools necessary for kind of taking care of the whole patient, focusing on wellness and cost avoidance of, of high cost care delivery models like your emergency department, long-term acute care, inpatient admissions, et cetera. And so as we move away from fee-for-service medicine to value-based care, we need to reduce the overall cost of care. And Keiko, the Keystone ACO, has experienced shared savings over the past three to four years, and that's been a, a real positive for us. But initially, we got involved to really begin to get our providers acclimated with this shift, but we're very, very happy with where this has all gone over the last 10 years and, and the kind of reductions in the cost of care that, that we're able to see in getting people to the right place again for their care. Very important. You're active as a board member at HAP, the Hospital and Health System Association of Pennsylvania. What is HAP prioritizing on the state level to benefit its member hospitals, their staffs, and their patients? Yeah, I mean, HAP's very, very busy. It's uh, been a really challenging last couple of years for HAP. But I, I think that they're overall working to address the workforce crisis right now, protecting access to care, harnessing the COVID-19 
flexibilities that have come about to extend and codify some of the COVID-19 waivers and flexibilities. There's a lot being discussed in healthcare right now about combating violence and abuse against healthcare workers. They've been very active in that realm. They've done a lot with uh, venue shopping and establishment of the venue of civil lawsuits issue that takes place, looking at nursing staff ratios, non-compete restrictions, all of those kinds of uh, issues. Streamlining prior authorization process for commercial plans, Medicaid, CHIP, they've been very active in a comprehensive patient protection bill that the legislature approved, which was was positive. I think another big thing that everybody talks about that they're very involved in is behavioral health. They've secured a lot. Um, I think it was a quarter of a million dollars of funding dedicated to behavioral health capacity across the state, looking at school-based mental health care services and one-time funds for adult behavioral health priorities. And that's been huge. They've been taken a very active role in supporting hospitals in response to this most recent triple-demic, you know, of COVID, influenza, and RSV that happened. And I, I think going forward, the latest presentations that I've seen, they're going to look at maximizing our hospital benefit for the reauthorization of the quality care assessment. They're helping talk about the fact that hospitals need help in proving their financial sustainability. They're looking at how they can help uh, grow and support the healthcare workforce. The behavioral health crisis is is not going away and, and they're continuing to try to address that. And then leaving a foundation to reinstate venue reform, which, which I talked earlier about. So HAP is very busy and very active at a time that they're also searching for a new CEO. Well, it sounds like it's certainly a full agenda. <laughs> it really is. Before I let you go, is there anything else you'd like to mention that we haven't covered? I think we've covered a lot. I, I think it's a, an interesting time to be a healthcare leader. So many people are, are kind of exiting the profession, but I think as healthcare executives, people need to be very aware and attuned to what's happening and, and be flexible. Delivery of healthcare is evolving quickly. You have to pay attention to the competitive landscape, but you have to especially as a community hospital, focus on your mission and how you can remain a valuable resource to the community. And at the end of the day, we're an industry charged with taking care of people. And it's a responsibility that we share with our neighboring partners and, and providers and, and other facilities. And I, I think it can get extremely competitive, but you have to really think about the fact that you're here to take care of people. And um, I think that we don't just care for the community, we, we care about the community at a much more direct level. And, and I, I think COVID revealed a lot about healthcare. There's a tremendous capacity to expand your resources when necessary. But I think that it, in the end, COVID, for me at least, reminded us that we have to return to this notion of, of a shared humanity and that we're all responsible for each other. And that's really, sometimes you get caught up in the business of healthcare, but you have to remember that we are a shared humanity and we really do have to take care of one another. Well, thank you very much for talking with us today. We appreciate your time. We've been talking about challenges and opportunities leading a community hospital network with Kendra Ocker. Thanks for listening and watch for our next edition of Actionable Insights on the Business of Healthcare. Thank you for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please share, rate, and review it on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platform. 
For more information on how Doctivity provides actionable insights to drive revenue and improve operational performance, visit DoctivityHealth.com, where you will find our videos, blogs, case studies, and more. See you next time for Doctivity's actionable insights on the business of healthcare.